This is the Sibling Library Podcast. You will know when to start listening when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's begin now. Welcome to the Sibling Library Podcast, the podcast where we read, share, and repeat. I'm Megan. I'm Julia. And I'm Katie. And this month uh, is the month of November, and we are celebrating a couple of different things this month. First, we are celebrating Native American History Month with the books that we chose for our our main discussion. Um, We are also going to be celebrating a little bit of Thanksgiving by talking about some of our favorite literary meals. And then we'll also discuss uh, in honor of Picture Book Month. Did I make that up? Yes. In honor of Picture Book National, Month. National Picture Book Month. Thank you. In it's honor of National. fledged thing. Yeah. It's it's a thing thing. Um, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite picture books. So we've got a full episode planned for you all. So sit back and relax. And maybe if you don't have some turkey or some mashed potatoes, go grab some. And now we're going to get into our roundup, which is our favorite literary meals. Did you guys have a hard time thinking of something for this? Mm, Not really. No? Did I have a hard time thinking of something witty to say? Probably more so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Katie? Did you have a hard time with this? I had to phone a couple friends on this one because, Yeah. yeah. The only thing I could think of initially was, and I'll share it when it's my turn. I don't know if it's my turn. I don't want to speak out of turn. I would never do that. But I <laughs> I was going to share what meal I would not want to be a part of is the only thing I could think of initially. So okay. you have that to look forward to, listeners. Sweet. All right, let's start with Julia. Oh, okay. Well, I guess actually kind of sort of this Maybe. is a meal I would not actually want to be part of but I would I I would find it amusing um in Anne of Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery chapter 16 is entitled Diana is invited to tea with tragic results <laughs> so basically in this chapter and Ruins a tea party by getting her friend drunk. But while she's accidentally <laughs> getting her that. friend drunk um, because she thought she was serving strawberry cordial, but she accidentally got the bottles of um, wine mixed up with a strawberry cordial. So she's serving her friend Diana glass after glass of wine and Diana gets drunk and eventually has to leave. But while that is happening, she tells Diana about uh, another dinner party that was happening when the, um, who was it? There was a couple that came over and she was supposed to cover the pudding with like cheesecloth to keep (laughs) any rodents out. And while she was attempting to do that, she pretended she was a nun and put the cheesecloth over her head and then in her daydreaming completely forgot to cover the pudding and unfortunately found a a mouse drowned in uh in the pudding 
So. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Anne. Oh, Anne. So I don't actually want to drink the wine that she's serving Diana or eat the mouse pudding, but just the way that that whole scene is written. And it's actually really funny in the, um, the mini series version with Megan follows. It's also very mm-hmm. funny. So it's mm-hmm. just, I just think Anne Shirley seems like a fun time. It's more of a fly on the wall situation. Yes, yeah, for sure. Good choice. Yeah. I remembered that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, Katie, you would like the wine. I see. Yes. I was just taking a sip of some. All right, so here's my rambling spiel that I'll take you through the the depths of this thought process that you may or may not enjoy. We'll see. So initially, I'll tell you, the only thing I could come up with was what meal I did not want to be a part of. And what came to mind for me was a comic book series called Chew. (laughs) Julia knows this one. Megan, have you are you familiar with this one at all? She's Megan wouldn't up. like it. This no. would this had something to do with zombies, didn't it? Or well, dead bodies. More the more the latter, not not the technical um, definition of a zombie, but basically the uh, the story centers around a detective who has a very special skill set that helps him to solve crimes, murders specifically. Because he was born with the ability, I think there's a, a made-up word for it, I don't remember what it is. But he was born with the ability to, um, anything that he eats, he can experience whatever that thing experienced. So if he eats a peach, um, you know, he'll he'll be able to sense the the tree that it was growing in, feel the sunshine... If it fell to the ground, he'd, you know, he would, he would get to basically see that whole scenario play out. So if you think about how that could be applied to um, solving murders, he typically would have to take a bite or a, a piece of, you know, a tidbit, a taste of whatever victim had been killed so that he could solve who killed that person. So yeah, that's any meal funny. that he was a part of, whether it was involved in solving crimes or it, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the only thing that he could actually eat just to eat because it was so mundane and and didn't, you know, arouse the sensation in him was canned beets, I think, which I actually like, but I'd get yeah, sick of after a while. So, yeah. so that was the first thing I could think of, but it didn't, um, it didn't satisfy the question. So I kept thinking and I asked my friend Matt. And he had a really good idea that um, actually fits perfectly, but it wasn't it wasn't one that I was super excited about. But I was going to share it anyway. Is the the Mad uh, Tea Party um, for Alice in Wonderland? It's like the perfect example, but it was like I don't know. I mean, I think it would be exciting to be there um, and entertaining, uh, but a little bit. I might feel a little bit like. I'm not sure when to duck and cover because these people are crazy. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that's an interesting choice and it definitely fits the assignment. But the thing that he mentioned was actually something else that I thought of too, but had dismissed um, because I didn't think it was a book, but I looked it up. It is a book. I haven't read it. Yes, I'm cheating, but I'm going to use it anyway. 
is the um, meal from Hook. Where I thought of that one too. Did you? <laughs> I, but I thought it was. I didn't realize it was a book. I thought it was just the movie. Well, I think the, I think it's even cheating a little bit more because I think the book is adapted from the movie. I think the book. I think the uh, movie came before the book, but there is a book. Okay. So the meal that we're talking about, if you don't know what we're referring to, is the meal where um, all grown up Peter Pan, who has forgotten that he's Peter Pan, goes back to Neverland to save his children who were kidnapped by Captain Hook. And the Lost Boys are trying to convince him or remind him of who he is. And um, one of the games they used to play was imagining that there was food there. And I love that scene because it's so... um, it, it just takes me back to when I was a kid playing, you know, make believe and um, and how easily we can forget how to do that as adults. So that was my my favorite choice of the things that I ran through. Um, so I want to thank Matt for reminding me that that was uh, a good one to go with. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, mine is also one that I would both want to and not want to be at. Um, but Bill and Flair's wedding in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Um, I've been in wedding mode this year, so, <laughs> you know, just would love to be able to go to that wedding. I don't remember specifically what types of food they said was there, but, um, I mean, Molly Weasley planned the planned the wedding, right? So I'm sure the food was delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely wouldn't want to be hanging around still for you know, how that party ended, uh, where the, the death eaters all come. Oh, spoilers. spoiler. <laughs> um, but knowing me and knowing that I like to go to bed early anyway, I, I probably would have already, you know, been gone. So would have been fine. But yeah, that would be my choice. Also a good one. All right, so are you guys ready to get into the meat and potatoes of this part of the episode? I see what you did there. Thank you. But are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this month we decided, since it is Native American History Month, we each decided to choose a different novel that was written by um, a Native American. You decided. Okay. Julia. <laughs> Tell us about uh, the book that you chose to read for this month. So this month, I read a book called Alatsoe, which for probably about three quarters of the book, I thought was pronounced Alatso. <laughs> but luckily, there is a part in the book, and I'll talk about this later, um, that the character is phonetically said her name so I was like oh I've been saying it wrong that's one thing I like about audiobooks I don't have to think about the pronunciation of things um but it is a lot written by Darcy Little Badger and I am really bad at giving synopsises so I'm going to read the synopsis from the Cooperative Children's Book Center about my book you ready yes Following news that her older cousin Trevor has died, Ellie, a contemporary Lipan Apache teen in Texas, is visited by Trevor in a dream in which he tells her he was murdered. 
Ellie, whose beloved dog Kirby remains her devoted companion five years after his death, doesn't find communicating with the spirit world unusual. She was named Alatsoe for her sixth great-grandmother, a woman whose legendary skill fighting real-world and supernatural threats helped protect the Lipan Apache people. But Trevor's message is deeply upsetting, adding anger to Ellie's heartbreak. Determined to find the killer, Ellie investigates with the help of her best friend Jay, who is white, a descendant of Oberon, although Jay's magic is faint. Evidence soon points to a doctor from nearby Willoughby, a small mysterious whitewashed Texas town where he has a secretive clinic and lives in a house guarded by vampires. The more Ellie learns, the greater the danger, including her mother cautions, risks that go hand in hand with her gift. Ellie's search for justice and rest for her cousin's spirit is also a story of family ties and family history, friendship, loss, and self-discovery in a novel with an engaging original plot, unique creative world building, and terrific characterizations, including the depiction of Ellie as asexual. Black and white illustrations at the start of each chapter depict sixth grade story. This is for children's aged 12 and older. Nice. There's a lot in there. Yeah. <laughs> and that didn't even spoil anything. Yeah. Wow. Mm. I can't wait give to hear it, more about it. Give it a, a one out of ten stars. Mm. I also hate rating books. Uh, I'd give it a good solid seven. Okay. I don't know what a ten would be, though. Anne of Green Gables? <laughs> I'll have Man, to look at my Goodreads see, see what I have uh... Goodreads is different though It does 1 to 5 Yeah 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 <laughs> Okay Julia's I quite liked pleased. it You quite liked it Nice It All sounded right, pretty entertaining Yeah Alright so The book that I chose to read Is called Code Talker By Joseph Brukak it's a novel about the Navajo Marines of World War II, and um, it follows a, it's a historical fiction, so it's a fictional story. Everything, all of the events that happened in it are historically accurate, but centered around fictional characters, um, but ones that resembled actual people, obviously. Um, it's written in the first person um, by a character, well, by the author, but spoken as the character Ned Begay, um, who is recounting his experience in during World War II as a Navajo, Navajo code talker um, in the Marines, and he's basically telling the story to his grandchildren to to share with them, you know, what that experience was like. Um, and uh, the the Navajo code talkers were um, a group of the the military that that basically had this unbreakable code. Um, and what they would do was they had an English word that would be a code word for something, but they would speak it to um, another Navajo via radio in another location in Navajo language so that um, anybody who was trying to intercept that message, um, you know, the, the Navajo language was not one that was known outside of the Navajo people. So it was a, it was a code that was never broken. Um, so they, they saved countless American lives doing what they did. Um, they were a huge part of um, the the heavy fighting throughout World War II. So um, it's a very, very good story. I would give it a solid, 
I'd give it a solid 8.5. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Nice. Your Good. Turn. Okay. Um, I read How I Became a Ghost by Tim Ting- Tingle. Um, it actually says How I Became a Ghost, a Choctaw Trail of Tears story uh, by Tim Tingle. And this one was also historical fiction. Um, it was about the, the Trail of Tears. Um, the main character is a 10-year-old uh Choctaw young boy um and he it's basically I mean the title says it all it tells the story of how he becomes a ghost and I think it's interesting that Julia you said your your book um has a lot of elements of discussing or portraying the ability to speak with the spiritual world like that was a huge part of my book as well um because he ends up becoming a ghost. I'm not going to spoil when in the story, but he does end up becoming a ghost in the story, but stays in the story as a ghost and is still able to communicate with people um, that are that are still alive. Uh, so I would give it a solid... I will say um, I really enjoyed it. It took a little bit of getting used to the writing style, um, so it took a chapter or two to get into it in regards to that. But once I got into it, I couldn't put it down. So I would give it a solid 8.75. Ooh. Yeah. All right. So I have a couple questions for you guys. Um, was there anything that you read in the book that gave you kind of like insight into an experience that's been different from your own life or something that you kind of looked at and were like, oh, that's not necessarily something that I can relate to from my experience, but I'm glad to see this in literature and be able to kind of learn about it in that way. Yeah, I, I mean, I could say that the entire book was that way because nothing about anything in this story is anything I've ever experienced. But I think specifically um, something that that came to mind in looking at this question and preparing to answer it was um, there was a a section of the book um, where and am I am I reading a passage or am I just you have describing one, yeah. it? Okay. If you have one um, that you want to share. Yeah. yeah. So to set the stage, basically the the main character of the book gets sent away to boarding school, which was which was common among the Navajo. Um, and I would imagine many of the, the Native American Indians lives is that, um, you know, they were sent away as young children to basically learn English and, um, you know, assimilate basically into American culture. Um, so he was dropped off at this boarding school, taken away from his family, um, grade school age, so very young. And he was there with a bunch of other children, uh, didn't know anybody there. And one of the big things apart about their culture is their language is something that is very sacred to them. And being able to speak that language to each other was a huge comfort. So it was initially, you know, something that he was, um, you know, really able to kind of find some some solace with with the other kids because they they could understand each other, um, and so that that kind of sets the stage for this passage that I'll read. Um, so the they were all standing there, and and basically one of the the uh, 
the teachers came up and was yelling at them. They couldn't understand the teacher. And essentially a translator came in and told them that they were not allowed to speak Navajo. They were only allowed to speak English and none of them knew. So the passage says, um, all of us stood there in silence. Most of us did not know any words in English. Those who did know some English words were so shocked that they couldn't remember any of them. The only way left to us was to speak English. Thinking back on it years later, I see now that it was a good policy in one sense. In the weeks that followed, we learned English much more quickly because we could not use our native tongue. But I can never forget how sad it made me feel when I learned enough English to understand what the angry red white man whose name was Principal O'Sullivan had to say about our sacred language and on our and our whole Navajo culture. Navajo is no good, of no use at all. Only English will help you get ahead in this world. Although the teachers at the school spoke in quieter tones than our principal, they all said the same. It was no good to speak Navajo or be Navajo. Everything about us was Indian. Everything about us that was Indian had to be forgotten. So obviously that's something that I've never experienced or or been asked to to do to let go of of something so integral to myself um, in order to fit in somewhere. So that made me really sad to to understand to to kind of get a window into that. Um, and then it it becomes somewhat ironic and not somewhat very ironic in the book that it's that it's that language that then becomes so valuable to um, you know to to the military. Yeah, so I found that really interesting. and wow. um yeah, and and a and a really powerful thing to to read and and it was very moving. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. But I like, know it, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard to relate to coming from, I mean, we're all, um, you know, white, white. people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I had to pause so long, but you know, we, we are, we have, we have privilege in that sense. We've never been asked to you know, shed something that is so, so much a part of ourselves just to fit in somewhere. So that that's, you know, that's something that is, it's very affecting to read that um, and and kind of be, be placed in, in that person's perspective and how that felt and and the way it was described was, you know, it it was very, very telling. And and again, it's hard for us to relate to. So it's, it's hard to have a response to that because you know, we've, and th- that's why I chose it because it was, it was something so different from my experience that it really stood out to me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. So from my book, I don't have anything quite so eloquent and deep, but, uh, what I thought was interesting is, um, when she talked about the origin of her name, um, cause she's usually being called Ellie. Um, and even her best friend didn't know her full name. He thought her name was Eleanor. Uh, I'll read a little passage, too. And all this time you thought I was Eleanor? Either Eleanor or Elizabeth. Sorry. It's my fault for not telling you sooner. I'm named after my heroic ancestor. Everyone calls her sixth grade now. But she was originally Alatsoe. It means hummingbird. Alatsoe in Lipan. Well... Technically, I was named after the animal. The night before my birth, my mom had a vivid dream about a hummingbird with black feathers, which glittered like those Hubble space pictures, the ones full of galaxies. 
It filled her with such overwhelming joy. She thought the dream must be a sign and the rest is history. And then her, her friend goes on to say, I'm jealous. Mom and dad named me Jameson because my father is James and I'm, I'm his son. And um, I just thought that was funny because mm-hmm. I don't think there's any real deep meaning behind my name or any of our names. My name certainly doesn't mean hummingbird, which I think would be pretty cool. <laughs> um, no offense, mom, if you're listening. You did a great <laughs> job naming us. Um, but I think that um, names mean more in uh, Native American culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the author, I was looking at her um, author page on Teaching Books, which is a database for, um, like it says, Teaching Books. Megan, you might like this database. Um, but there is a section that the author gets to explain their name and um, pronounce it so that you know, like every time we're like, do we say this name like this? And we're probably mm-hmm. wrong. So maybe we'll check on teaching books next time we encounter that. Um, Podcast hack. Good call. Yeah. yeah. But the author's name is Darcy Little Badger. Um, and the Little Badger part is uh, the Native American Leapon Apache part. And um, she said she... When she's writing, she uses the name Darcy Little Badger. Little Badger, actually, my original name, is in the Lipan language. We don't normally say our names, but the English translation is fair game. And actually, what the badger refers to is, in our origin story, the animal that basically burrowed up to earth from below where all things lived before we came here was a badger. And Badger was the one with the responsibility to return back and tell everyone, oh man, there's this wonderful world up here. Y'all should check it out. A couple other animals had come up here before her, but they just fell in love with the world so deeply that they forgot to return. Badger was the only one who actually returned. So when I say that by the word little, I'm not talking about little as a person. People who know me would realize that, yeah, personality is anything but that. But I am, I guess, little for a godlike creature. So that's the origin of my name. And I just thought that was cool. I don't that have an origin really story cool. for my name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know who I was named after, but yeah. that is, that is, there's something, and that ties back to a bit of what I was talking about is just how um, language and, and meaning behind words and, and just how, mm-hmm. how sacred that is to them. And it's just, it's just mm-hmm. part of, part of their culture. And I think it's beautiful. Yeah. It is really cool. Mm-hmm. Really cool. It's really cool. <laughs> um, so mine that I came across is uh, kind of heavy, um, but I know this we'll is something I had some more wine. That in I mean today's society we know we don't get enough history about Native Americans in school whatsoever. Like I know that I definitely remember hearing about the Trail of Tears. But other than maybe a paragraph in a history book somewhere that basically just said they made the the Native Americans leave their land and they made them walk to get to their new place and that that walk kind of sucked. So they called it the Trail of Tears. That's pretty much the extent of what I learned in history. Did you guys have a similar experience? Or did you have? I would like, imagine so. I yeah. 
I really, one of the, my regrets from my school days is that I, I didn't, history was not, was never my favorite subject. And I didn't have a, a great retention for the things that I learned. So sure, not much, but, not much left in impact. So I don't remember what was taught. Yeah. But I mean, like there were things that were believed to be important that we learned multiple different times, True. multiple different ways. Right. This, yeah. and this was just not something that they felt was important enough for us to read more about, read about more than maybe once. And right. I wouldn't be surprised if there are a lot of textbooks that don't even mention this at all. Yeah. But yeah. So essentially for an, if anybody out there has not heard of the trail of tears, um, in a nutshell in the 1830s, uh, the U.S. government wanted essentially Oklahoma and probably a few neighboring states. They wanted that area for agriculture, you know, because we needed to grow some cotton and some tobacco. So we needed that land. We needed the Native Americans to vacate that land. So they convinced them to sign a treaty. And I would put air quotes around that because I think it was definitely the treaty was just for show. Um, but they made the the Native Americans leave their land. Um, and they did not treat them very well as they were leaving. Um, so the 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 passage that I have is they've been on this uh, trail of tears, and the the main character has not uh, become a ghost yet, um, but they have been marching or walking for a while now, and it's now the the dead of winter and very snowy. Um, so uh, he he says, or he the author writes, one step at a time I started walking. The snow was thick and my feet stung with every step. I looked behind me. I was leaving bloody footprints in the snow. Mounds of snow covered the road. The snow fell in soft white flakes, but now the snow behind me was dotted red. I walked ahead, but I could not stop myself from looking over my shoulder. Ten steps. Ten bloody footprints, a hundred steps, a hundred bloody footprints trailing after me. I wanted to run to leave the footprints behind me. I did run, but the footprints followed me. The faster I ran, the more footprints. So, yeah, no history book covered the why it was a trail of tears and not just a nice little hike into the woods, right? Mm -hmm. Um so I, I don't know. I, I feel like reading this book has made me especially realize the importance of having, um, you know, I know this isn't necessarily a primary source, but the, the author of this book, his grandfather did actually walk the Trail of Tears. So I would I imagine like given what you guys have said about the importance of their of their spoken language to them and oral history, I'm sure is important. So I'm sure he's he got many stories from his grandfather that he, he didn't have to imagine much to portray what, what walking on the trail of tears was. So I just feel like the importance of primary sources in our students learning is it's, it's important. The importance is important. <laughs> it's self-explanatory. It's self-explanatory. Yeah. It's like an important you... thing. I feel like what you just said um, kind of leads into your second question that you had for us, which I'm just going to say it. Was there anything in your book that made you want to Google more info? 
And I think what you just said about how oral history is important in their culture um, is very true because I did try to look some stuff up and I really could not find anything. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was interested, there's some parts in the book that I read that um, kind of makes mention of like Lipan death rituals and like what happens after a family member dies. And um, I was just curious if how, how true to, because my book was not historical fiction. It was completely fantasy. And um, I was just curious, like the things that she says happen in that book, in her story, if that's really what they do. And I tried to look it up a little bit and really couldn't find anything. Um, and I was also just kind of curious about the mythology and everything. And um, like, obviously, I don't think there are actual vampires, which do show up in that book. But I'm wondering, like, what their kind of culture and relationship towards like the supernatural and ghosts and spirits and all of that is. But yeah, I'd be interested in that too, because um, in, in my book, like I said, the, the, the main character, he, before he passes away, he's able to see these visions of how the people around him are going to die. So he was always able to, if someone was going to die in a day or so, he would get a vision of how it was going to happen. Um, he wouldn't know exactly when it was going to happen, but he could kind of ballpark when. Um, but there's also another character in the book who's able to shapeshift into a panther. Um, so, and that's pretty cool. So, like, yeah, it, I, it's interesting that that seems to be much more part of their culture, at least in what you and I have seen in our two books, um, than I had originally realized. Was there anything in your book, Katie, about, like, supernatural elements? No, there really wasn't. It was it was very focused, unless there's something I'm forgetting that, you know, was it, if there was, it wasn't a, a central point to mm-hmm. the plot in any way. Um, no, yeah, I mean, it was it was very focused on on the war and the things that happened. And um, I think one of the reviews I read. Read, um, it used the word non-sensationalized, which I would I would say like this is it's very like you're getting all of the information without romanticizing any of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's um, but but also like really seeing a, an authentic um, window into what that could have felt like um, to, yeah. to go through. Yeah. Julia, I kind of stepped on you. Did was were you was there anything else you wanted to add to what you were saying? Um, all I wanted to say was uh the only thing I could find is was on like a Native American website that kind of talked about briefly all different tribes of um I think specifically Apache. And there was one sentence that that said Apache spirits are supposed to dwell in a land of peace and plenty where there is neither disease or death, which sounds great. Did you guys have anything else that in your books that made you want to Google anything or did we want to kind of move the conversation mm-hmm. onward? Well, mine's quick. I I was Googling and listening to pronunciations of the different words that they were 
they were using, and I'm I'm not going to try to pronounce them because I I don't want to butcher them, and they were really beautiful to listen to. So, um, you know, there's there's a couple of different translation sites online that you can click on, you know, the little microphone icon, and it'll say it for you in the in the correct with the correct correct pronunciation. But that was what I was really interested in because there was a lot of that throughout the book, and you know, the spelling of it is. And the and the phonetics is very different from English, so it was really hard for me to kind of form the word in my mind. So I was doing that quite a bit throughout the book. Nice. All right. Well, did you guys have any last thoughts of just like your overall experience with reading a book by a Native American? Like, are you glad we did this? Any any closing thoughts on this conversation? I'm really glad we did it. I I think it takes it back to the the first discussion question that you formulated around, you know, giving us a, a window into an experience that is, is completely different from ours and giving us um, an idea of how to, how to relate to someone who's, you know, part of that culture, just, just by, you know, we didn't experience it ourselves, but, you know, got some, some insight into that. Yeah. That is definitely one of the the main points of literature is, you know, seeing that human condition in all of its forms. So thanks for doing this with me, you guys. And I'd like to challenge our readers. If you are interested in any of the books that that we read, we recommend all of them. But there are so many other books out there by Native Americans that you can read. I'm sure you will find something that will tickle your fancy and give you a window into a culture that uh, you don't know, unless we have any Native American listeners out there, in which case, if we do, send us an email, siblinglibrarypod at gmail.com. All right, so to close out today's episode, we're going to talk about some of our favorite picture books. Julia, did you put together a little blurb about picture book month yes i did take it away okay so november is national picture book month um and i highly recommend that you always check your library to see how they are celebrating because you never know what libraries are doing um but i just wanted to give a little information about the history of picture books in america and i am actually reading a book right now called show me a story why picture books matter by leonard s marcus And in the introduction of this book, the author discusses that picture books didn't really become a big deal in America until after the country was starting to recover from the Great Depression. Uh, And American illustrators began to rise to the challenge of either matching or surpassing the works that are being published across the ocean. Because before that time, uh, American readers heavily relied on the works being published in other countries and not so much by authors here. And in 1937, the American Library Association created the Caldecott Medal, which recognized exceptional illustrations in children's books. And it was named after Rudolph Caldecott, who was widely recognized as one of the greatest masters of children's picture book creators. And the baby boom of the 1950s further increased the popularity of picture books with parents wanting to provide their children with a happier and opportunity-rich experience than they had during the Great Depression. As a result, this generation 
bought a lot of children's books, as well as provided a lot of support to both public schools and public libraries. And both of these institutions purchased most of the children's books in America. In a nutshell. Nice. So for the end of this episode, we wanted to pick one or two or however many um, picture books we liked, right? That's what we're we're talking about as children yeah. or ones yeah. that we like now as adults. I just want to hear about some favorite picture books. Favorite picture books. Ready, go, Katie. I just visited my childhood home over the weekend and got to look over some of our collected beloved picture books. I have to think about what you meant by that for a second. You just mean mom and dad's house. I do. Okay. (laughs) I was like, you went to New Jersey? Oh, well, that was my home. Yeah, no, I was born there, but didn't live there long. long. Um, I don't know. I was trying to make it sound more whatever. So (laughs) I, uh, one of the books that I revisited and picked up that I remembered very fondly was Where the Wild Things Are. And I was just looking up um, as Julia was reading through that description. And this was a book that was awarded the, the Caldecott Medal that you described, which I can completely see the, the drawings in it. And the, the author is Maurice Sendak. Did he do the illustrations as well? Do you know, Julia? It's okay. Mm. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but the illustrations are really what, what make the book. I mean, the story itself is very, uh, whimsical and, um, I, I read through yes. it. Mari Sendak did, the, did illustrate yeah. as well. And I was looking through them and I really, just the aesthetic of them is, is awesome. The, the, the monsters in it are, are both like scary and cuddly at the same time. Somehow I don't know how he achieved that, um, but I love it. And I remember reading through it as a child and feeling like, I felt like it was a fairly long book as a kid. And I don't, as I read through it, just recently, it, it took all of five minutes, not even, to get through it. Because I think I must have spent a lot more time looking at the pictures, maybe. And I think the other thing that I remembered was there's a, a part where Max is sailing, out, imaginary sailing out of his room. And it, it says he sailed for weeks and nights and days and weeks and months and for a really long time. So I think in my head as a kid, that made me think that, like, it took a really long time to read it. I don't know, kid logic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was one that I picked up. And the other one that I, I revisited and, and remembered reading a lot as a kid that had gorgeous illustrations was um, Animalia. And that's the book that each page is for a different letter. And it does all of these alliteration, like an alliterative statement um, that was kind of nonsense. It didn't really make sense. But the drawings in that were what made it really special because not only was there the the alliterative statement, but there was so many like hidden Easter eggs of like all sorts of stuff throughout the page that that started with the letter of the alphabet. So it was just I think it was a really neat way to learn the alphabet and just kind of pour over these beautiful illustrations and find all the little things that were all the little details that were included in each each drawing. Nice. 
Julia? I also brought along two picture books that I wanted to talk about. Um, and they're both gifts given to me on different occasions. Um, the first one is Maddie and Cataragus by Dennis Kite, which was uh, a book that the Easter Bunny brought me. Mm-hmm. And um, the pictures are just so, so the pictures in it are just so sweet. And I have always been on the Shire side of the spectrum. So I very much related to the very, very shy Mr. Cataragus who only wanted to make Maddie his friend. And while I didn't ever dress up as a giant rat and get melted cheese all over me, I can um, relate to his sentiments of wanting a friend. So Mm. that sounded way sadder. I had friends. I just (laughs) took me a little while to open up. Um, It's relatable. And and then the... Second book that I want to talk about is called The Very Worst Monster by Pat Hutchins. And this one's about a little monster who her parents have another little monster and she's just trying to convince them all that she's the worst monster in the world and the baby sucks. Nothing (laughs) special about the baby. And I got this book um, at the same time Megan was born. um, Our aunt... Page and Uncle Eddie said it sent it to me to try and help me um, be okay with being a big sister. But really, I was always fine being a big six sister. So really, I think Katie should have gotten this book when I was born. <laughs> I wasn't as great of a big sister early on, but he I wasn't know. getting dethroned. So yeah, I didn't have as hard a time adjusting to Megan being around. But yeah, those are two that I remember, and they probably aren't even print anymore, so good luck finding them. <laughs> nice. Maybe in the library or digital or something. I no, don't think so. Don't think so. That's a shame. Mm-hmm. All right. My turn? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have one that I had thought of prior to the show and then one that I just thought of so I, I might need a, a tag team from Julia because I tried to do a Google search and I couldn't find the specific version um, but the first one I want to talk about is um, Harold and the Purple Crayon by Crockett Johnson and I loved this book for a couple reasons because it was one, purple? that's why you loved it uh... I, <laughs> I loved it <laughs> Because uh, I just always loved that idea of being able to draw something in the air and have it appear. Like, I, my, my creative mind as a child just took that and ran with it a lot. And then the other reason I loved it is that it's just like a little, it's a little book. So it was like a miniature book and it just fit in my hands so nicely. You love miniature things. I love miniature things. Um, so that that was the first one that I thought of. And then the other one that I thought of as Katie was talking, I don't know why it triggered me, I think, just thinking about the illustrations. But I remember I have vivid memories of loving mom reading me the house that Jack built. Mm-hmm. And I can't find the specific version online that we have um, or who the author was of that one. But I just remember loving the the way that 
because that one was so repetitive and I, I can't think of any of the lines right now, but you know. The house that Jack In the house that Jack built. Yeah, yeah like it just it builds just on itself. Builds on itself. Um, and I just remember loving listening to mom read that one because it gets kind of rhythmic, you know, and well, not it doesn't get kind of rhythmic as Julia just il- illustrated for us. It is meant to be rhythmic. So I just remember loving listening to mom read it and then also really enjoying finding all of the things that are said in the the poem on all the different pages. Um, so yeah, those are the two that I remember. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for that conversation. Um, I think, I think we all got, got something good out of it. I hope that our listeners enjoyed it. Um, and again, I'd like to challenge them to find some picture books that they, uh, haven't read in a while and take them back into their childhood with those so with or if you have children now share with them some of your favorite picture books when you were a kid i'm curious what they would think yeah definitely yeah all right well thank you guys for staying with us um until next time read share and repeat bye 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 That brings us to a close on this chapter of Sibling Library. Thank you for listening. Until next time, let's read, share, and repeat.